This is Here Arizona, addressing issues, empowering our community. In our last episode, we spoke with a criminal justice scholar and a public defender on the ways the misdemeanor justice system can disproportionately harm homeless and poor Arizonans. We discussed how, for a lot of unsheltered people, daily activities like sleeping and eating can be criminalized. We discussed how they're less likely to be offered or afford bail when they're arrested. We discussed how they're not always entitled to representation in the criminal process. We ended our last episode on sentencing. Somewhere between 90 and 99% of misdemeanor cases are handled by plea bargains, and usually result in sentences of fines, probation, and rarely, jail time. For most of us with means, whether that's a savings account, a stable home life, or a supportive family, a short jail sentence or supervised probation is at worst an unpleasant, disruptive, but not life-damaging experience. But yet again, for the large population of Americans who can't afford a $400 expense, fines, probation fees, and jail time are often much more damaging than the effects of the crime they committed. It could be what makes them homeless, or keeps them homeless. On this episode of Unsheltered, we look at the misdemeanor penalties and their lasting effects on homelessness. After Carolyn Moore's misdemeanor assault conviction, the judge sentenced her to probation. Was probation really the only thing they gave you, or did they give you yeah. Okay. Yeah, they gave me probation, but I had to fight all the way, all the way, all the way. So it ended up going to trial and whatnot? Oh yeah, I took it all the way because I thought, I'm not guilty, I didn't do nothing. Her probation was unsupervised, which, all things considered, doesn't sound like a bad deal. She didn't have to report to a probation officer or adhere to any strenuous restrictions. She just had to stay out of trouble for a year. But that's not always the case for other defendants. David Ward, who manages the City of Phoenix Public Defender's Office and who represents homeless and indigent clients in misdemeanor cases, says that even the least restrictive probation still has sharp teeth. It's really difficult to get housing when you're on probation. You know, she has three years of probation, so it's going to be difficult to get housing for three years. And so that was one of the times you realize, while probation really does have teeth, so many times people say, well, the guy got on probation, it wouldn't nothing happen. Well, a lot happens. It marks you and it, it makes things difficult, especially if you're, if you're marginal. For most misdemeanor convictions, especially for first-time offenders, Phoenix uses what Ward calls summary probation. Much like Moore's sentence, it's unsupervised. One of the judges calls it probation on the honor system, which is not quite accurate. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to take, well, sometimes you'll have to take your classes. Uh, like, for instance, in the case in domestic violence, they'll require you to take classes. And if you don't do that, then you're put on, they'll violate your probation, and then you'll go to jail. Well, obviously, break the law and face the consequences. That's Civics 101. Nothing really controversial about that. Why is it even a problem? It all comes down to the status crimes, the crimes that someone who is homeless has to commit just to survive. What we tell the clients and the judge will often say, you have 180 days hanging over your head. Well, that's a delightful thought, you know, that you live with that day in and day out. I hope my, hope I don't make a mistake. And it's really tough for the homeless client when they're saying, I hope I don't get caught urinating behind a dumpster. And now you're back in trouble with the status crime. They'll violate your probation. You could find yourself in jail. And so it, it does have ramifications. Now, some people respond to it better than others, but it's not without a problem. And you, I don't think oftentimes 
people hear enough about the people who went to jail on probation violations. After her eviction, when Moore was living out of her car, she came close to violating her probation a few times. It was usually a store owner or manager who called the police to report her for loitering or trespassing. One time, it was a quick trip convenience store manager in Peoria. Well, this little store manager guy in there called the police on me. And fortunately, it was in Peoria. And I told him, yes, I, because they came out and they go, well, he called. You're not supposed to. She said, you're living here. Well, I'm not living here. I'm just paying, buying stuff here. I'm not living here. But they tend to believe the store over me, you know. And, I mean, I was even sitting at the gas pumps fixing to put gas, more gas in my car when the police... But Peoria, I told them I'd been to that homeless outreach, and I said, yes, I know, blah. So they were really nice to me about it. Peoria was super with me. Some officers even agreed to help her as best they could. And so he said, well, you can go down here to this Denny's and stay in their parking lot at night because it's on my beat, and, and they're pretty good about letting people. So I thought that was really cool of him to do that. She's very lucky she got officers that were willing to accept her story and not arrest her for loitering or trespassing. She would have violated her probation and could have been sent to jail for the first charge, the fight she had with her neighbor. ASU law professor Ben McJunkin says probation, like most penalties, are designed around someone who has means, money, and stability in their lives. It turns out that to be on probation, you have to pay fees to your probation officers. In general, if it involves any kind of monitoring or drug testing, you pay the fines and fees to go to those things. Uh, And every small misstep that you make, including failure to submit your report, failure to notify your probation officer if you have any interaction with uh, a police officer, those end up being technical violations that get you hauled back into court, that potentially stick you back into jail, uh, or, you know, that at the very least extend your length of your probation or extend the number of requirements. You know, so if you were on a twice a month drug test and you miss one of your drug tests and now you're on a five time a month drug test, well, like the odds that you're gonna miss the next one go up, right? In fact, for some homeless defendants, a short jail sentence might be preferable to a lengthy and complicated probation. There are a lot of people who, if given the choice of a short jail sentence and then walking out free and clear, would take that over um, the kind of restrictive probation conditions that people are given. But I've actually been in courts where judges refuse to let people opt for the jail sentence, right? Um, you know, judges have sentencing discretion and they say, no, like it's more important that you're out in the world and so here, do all of these other things and jump through these hoops for the next year rather than just sit in a cell and stare at the wall for 15 days. Fines are another option judges have. In misdemeanors, fines can range from $500 to $2,500. For the 2019 to 2020 fiscal year, the city of Phoenix collected about $12.8 million in fine revenue. It made up about 6% of the city's budget. More than half of those came from moving violations, like speeding or red light running. But still, nearly a quarter of those fines came from what the budget calls, quote, other fine and forfeiture receipts. These fines generally fall to people who are already economically disadvantaged. Um, And so when you start to see you know, large revenue uh, generated by fines, you have to keep in mind that it's not just, you know, the problem of fines generating revenue, but also the problem of fines that are being assessed unequally against the people who are least in position to be paying those fines. There are provisions in the law that allow those who can't afford fines to either go on payment plans or appeal to a judge to have their fines reduced. 
Again, though, just because these provisions exist doesn't mean they're equally applied. It's just that our court systems are set up in a way that makes it really, really hard for anyone to convince a court that they don't have the ability to pay. And so many people are sitting in jail because either they can't afford bail to get out or they can't afford to pay their fines and the judges decided they can't afford it and they just don't want to. You know, this is it's a challenging part of our criminal justice system that definitely needs some reform because if, as long as there is financial incentives to criminalize behavior and to punish people for those like relatively minor crimes, it's going to disproportionately affect uh, it's going to people who are of lower economic status, minorities, people of color. And, you know, that's a deeply unfair system that just exacerbates wealth inequality. According to Ward, there's a direct link between probation, fines and homelessness. Now, I had a client recently that was trying to get housing and we got her an offer and um, we had to plead to the court. She had many, many shoplifting charges. She was on the verge of being homeless, but we were able to get her on probation because the offer was a long time in jail. But she had made significant strides in making her life better. She had gotten uh, off heroin. She had gotten off the street. She had tentative housing. But then when she tried to get into housing, we found out that she was on probation. And so it's really difficult to get housing when you're on probation. You know, she has three years of probation, so it's going to be difficult to get housing for three years. Most people accused of nonviolent misdemeanors will not see the inside of a jail cell, at least as a sentence. Some might, though, if they can't afford a few hundred dollars to post bail. And again, if someone who is unsheltered finds themselves in jail, they can lose whatever progress they were making towards stability. So if it's hard enough for them to get bail to get out in the first place, right, uh, then let's say that they had some kind of job, that maybe they had some kind of day labor position that they could go to to make a few bucks here or there, right? Well, now you're sitting in jail, not able to like earn the money that you need to get yourself out of jail. To top this all off, Professor McJunkin says enforcing these laws could be unconstitutional to begin with. Um, so there was a decision in, the, in a federal court, uh, in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, a couple of years back that basically said that it's uh, unconstitutional to criminalize behavior when someone has no other alternative. And so that particular case was about uh, ordinances for something that here we would call urban camping, which is just sort of sleeping in public. Um, and what the court said is, if you don't have available shelter beds for, for individuals, then you can't criminalize the existence of them sleeping in public, right? So uh, it, it's basically a prerequisite. The government, in order to punish you, has to make certain resources available. His role as a researcher is investigating whether or not Arizona is effectively making those resources available. If not, some of the misdemeanors that unsheltered people are charged with could be ruled unconstitutional. Among the things that city ordinances prohibit, uh, loitering in parks, resting at a bus stop, obstructing a sidewalk, pitching a tent, asking for money, asking for work, uh, or sleeping just about anywhere. All right? So all of those are minor crimes under city ordinances, which gives you very few options, right? And that's not including things uh, you know, like public urination that's often an issue, um, it's not including things uh, like, uh, you know, aggressive panhandling. So it's not including any of like the minor alcohol and drug offenses that they might be caught with, but merely just trying to find a place to sleep, find a place to rest, find a place to stop moving um, ends up being criminalized. There are a lot of people beginning to recognize these issues and are actively working to change them. Nonprofit organizations that work with unsheltered Arizonans help them get back some stability after going through the legal system. 
In previous episodes, we've mentioned the Homeless Court, which offers diversionary programs and restorative justice for qualified defendants. So that's a relatively nice progressive thing that the county is trying to do to deal with the issue of homelessness. Um, So the way that the homelessness courts work, you do require a referral by a provider, um, which is yet another system of discretion that makes it hard for people who might want help to get the help that they want. But um, you get referred over to a separate court where they bundle your charges together, um, whatever cases you might have outstanding or cases in the past. And then they uh, create a quote unquote sentence that gets applied to your time in certain kind of rehabilitation programs. David Ward, the public defender, says these courts are making progress, but there's still a long way to go. The development of the specialty courts has really been a a big jump forward, and we're really pleased about that. And that's been a bit of a kind of a collaborative effort, if that's such a thing in such an adversarial system as the justice system. But we work together with the prosecutor's office and with Judge Bayardi and Judge Taylor, both of which have been immensely supportive and very helpful in setting out the specialty courts, uh, behavioral health court, people have mental health issues, um, the veterans court, uh, dealing with veterans, uh, homeless court. The homeless courts focus heavily on connecting defendants with the myriad services that exist in the community trying to channel them into, you know, what resources we do have to deal with issues like addiction, to deal with issues like substance abuse, to give them some kind of educational or vocational training, and to treat their participation in those systems as uh, payment for their, you know, quote-unquote crimes. One of those services was a post-prison re-entry program run by Chicanos por la Causa. Participants were given help finding housing, jobs, transportation, essentially restarting their lives on the right foot. When they were um, uh, released, uh, they would uh, contact us, or I would contact their POs, probation officers, and get in contact with them. Then I would make an appointment with them. That's Eusebio Quesada. When he met with recently released inmates, he would help them develop a treatment plan. And it varied um, from um, client to client uh, what their needs were. Some of them already had a job when they were um, released, so... We didn't have to help them in that area, but maybe they were continuing to struggle with um, with uh, substance abuse. So we would um, enroll them in substance abuse classes, and they would attend substance abuse classes. Now, also, if they had um, if they secure a job and they had um, they needed uh, materials like boots or uh, any um, tools. We would help them, we would provide them with a voucher. The clients involved had a lot of success. Eusebio himself helped 150 people find housing and jobs after getting out of prison. Then came the budget cuts. This program saw all of its money dry up, and without any money, they had to shut down. By all accounts, it was a big success, and they're still trying to find a way to fund it. Wow, all our our directors, our grant writers are constantly um, searching for um, any grants that are available. Uh, so yes, we're um, we're searching and looking to see um, if uh, we can revive the, the program and assist individuals uh, that are being released from uh, being incarcerated. 
The COVID-19 pandemic appears to be a perfect storm. It's destroyed businesses and employment. It's poised to lead to a major homelessness crisis once eviction moratoriums are lifted. But homeless service organizations haven't been immune from the trouble either. Grants are drying up, people need to save whatever money they can, so donations are down. There's no telling if there will ever be money for this kind of programming again. Carolyn didn't go through the homeless court. She wasn't homeless when she got in her fight. But she did work with Partners in Recovery and Southwest Behavioral Health, who helped her slowly work her way back into stable housing. Well, the, the guy named Art that was Southwest Behavioral Health, he had been my assigned case manager with the Southwest um, Behavioral Health Linked Up Program. And this man was awesome. He went above and beyond the call of duty. I mean, I got a flat tire one morning, and he came out and helped me. And I know that wasn't part of his job, but he came out and helped me because I had nobody else. I had, you know, no no family, nobody, you know. So um, he helped me with all kinds of things. And I, I put myself, all my stuff here in, in big storage. And then I got myself a little storage <laughs> and lived out of it. Once she got all of her stuff into storage, they helped her search for an apartment. And then he would take me, we'd go look at these places, and I'd apply, and I'd put my money down an application fee, and I'd get turned down. And it was just really frustrating. He just happened to find this place. But it took a whole year. Paul Buttermore is a case manager at Southwest Behavioral Health. He specifically helps people like Carolyn find housing. It can be a pretty big challenge. Over the last couple of years, it's been a real struggle in the, the Phoenix market to find uh, affordable housing, um, the, regardless of whether there's any kind of criminal record or not. Um, you, you throw into the, the, uh, a client with a criminal record, and it, it probably reduces their ability to find housing by about 75%. To be clear, there is housing available for people with criminal records. Some apartment owners bar anybody with any criminal record, from trespassing to murder. Other landlords accept tenants with criminal records, but they don't exactly advertise that fact. Paul's job is to help people find landlords and apartments that are willing to work around these criminal records. So what we do, we, I, we've created relationships with apartment complexes, um, and we, we have a good idea. We have our own list of, of ones that uh, we know will accept felonies. Um, and we, we just, we work, we kind of have this internal um, kind of uh, communication amongst our, our team of where we know we can go. Um, we, we start there and sometimes we also, we work with the clients on being able to, to kind of be independent and, and uh, do some of their own research. And then we help them in that regard. Landlords want to protect their property and their business. That's why they do background checks. But Paul says the background checks are often unevenly applied. Any crime, no matter when it occurred or what it was, can disqualify someone. We've seen some folks that have been turned down for, for housing that were like, you know, it was a crime maybe from 25 years ago, and they've done nothing since. Um, and maybe it wasn't even a violent crime, but it might have been a felony, and that keeps the, the client from being eligible for said apartment. Carolyn Moore is one of their success stories. She now lives in an affordable, one-bedroom apartment right along the light rail in central Phoenix. It costs her about $700 a month. Probably one of the only places left in the whole state of Arizona that, that is that cheap.
She's lucky, though. There are thousands of homeless individuals here in Maricopa County. Nearly 3,800 unsheltered and 3,600 sheltered as of January's point-in-time count. Experts say that number is extremely likely to grow significantly in the coming years, especially if government leaders don't act soon on some sort of affordable housing programs and relief for people affected by the pandemic. We wanted to give David, the public defender, the last word. He's out there representing the people in court on the front lines of what is a legitimate crisis in our criminal justice system. Drug addiction, alcohol addiction are not signs of a personal failing. A lot of people have made bad choices and have gotten themselves in bad positions, but haven't found themselves where their life is on the verge of ruin or is in ruins. And treating people with especially substance abuse problems, mental health problems, as having a personal failing, I think is probably one of the most egregious misunderstandings of the criminal justice system there is. And so until we can treat some of these issues as a social problem, as a medical problem, as a societal problem, and quit treating them as a criminal problem, we are going to be stuck in this same cycle. And unfortunately, I think the cycle is getting wider and broader, and it's getting more and more difficult to make a living. It's making more and more difficult for people to avoid the street where there are no services, uh, mental health services, medical services, rehabilitation services. So that anytime you hear that these people are they're bad people or that there's a that they have some sort of political they have some sort of personal failing that's just an error you just listened to an entire podcast episode on the issue of homelessness in Arizona obviously this issue is important to you if you want to do something that helps make a difference, we have dozens of local, nonprofit resources listed on our website, hearearizona.org. You're sure to find something, big or small, that you can do. An easy way to get started is to help us learn more about you, the listener, and participate in our three-question survey. It's as easy as texting 888-774-9150. You'll even get a free pair of earbuds for your time. You can learn more about homelessness by listening to the rest of our Unsheltered series on your favorite podcast listening app, NPR One, Stitcher, Spotify, or by downloading directly from hearearizona.org. Don't forget to subscribe because there's plenty more to come. Here Arizona is a production of the Division of Public Service at Rio Salado College, which includes Sun Sounds, Spot 127, KBOC, and KJZZ. This episode was reported, written, and produced by me, Scott Bork. Linda Pastore is our executive producer. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Scott Bork from Here Arizona Podcasts. Since you're still listening, you're obviously a fan of ours. We want to hear more from you. Visit hearearizona.org and take our listener survey. That's H-E-A-R-Arizona.org. Thanks for listening.